What does the Bible say about angels and demons? In the celestial realm, an endless war rages on. A battle between the forces of light and darkness, angels and demons. Spiritual warfare is all around us. But how does this supernatural conflict impact us? Can Christians be possessed by demons? Do guardian angels exist? Is it possible for me to see an angel? To learn how the Bible offers guidance on how to navigate this supernatural conflict and overcome the influence of evil forces, here is Pastor Jim Scudder Jr. with today's message. What does the Bible say about angels and demons? Well, in the first few messages that I did on this topic, we learned that there certainly are angelic beings that God created. And unfortunately, some fell. And you have the good angels, the holy angels, the righteous angels that did not. And we believe maybe a third of the angels fell when Lucifer fell. And we believe that probably was sometime after creation, but obviously before sin. If I were to take a guess at it, that would be the, the time slot. But boy, we have really messed up things, haven't we? Because we listened to that stupid, ignorant, foolish, lying devil. Now you might say, Pastor Scudder, if the devil is powerful, should you not be calling him names? That's probably something I shouldn't do. Maybe you shouldn't do. But I just get so upset. I get so mad at what he has done. And it's just time for us to to stand up against him, to stand up against what he's trying to do and, and how he's trying to ruin our lives. You say, well, you said already that a Christian, somebody that has received by faith Jesus, cannot be demon-possessed. And I truly believe that to be true because we have someone greater in us, God, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And so I don't believe a, a Christian can be possessed, but a, a Christian can be messed up. A Christian can be tripped up. A Christian can still succumb to the temptation of the devil, of the world, and of the flesh. And so we have to prepare ourselves to make sure that doesn't happen. We have a program here that meets every Friday night, and we have always over a 100 people that gather to make sure that they get the help they need to overcome Addictions. It's called the Simple Steps Addictions Recovery Program. And the seventh simple step, we have 12 simple steps. The seventh one is a, a message that I did for video, and it's played in all the chapters around the country and a couple in Canada every Friday night. And it's simply this. We are in a real spiritual battle. We have to realize this. We are in a real spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a spiritual battle going on, but I think we have a lot of Christians that don't understand the seriousness of this battle. And often, because they're not understanding the seriousness, there are, they are allowing the devil, the world, and the flesh to, uh, to win. 
in their life. And then we have, we have the same problems that the world has. That should not be. Christians often are full of excuses. And it reminds them of a story that I heard about a group of nine soldiers that did not return on time from leave. And the next morning at roll call, they weren't there. By 10 o'clock, the commanding officer was furious and he was very upset when they finally started to show up. The first one comes before him and he said, where were you? And the guy says, well, I had, last night I had a date and uh, it, it went a little long and so then I missed the bus, so I hired a cab. The cab broke down. I knocked on a farmhouse. I borrowed a horse. I was riding the horse and the horse died and I had to walk the last 10 miles. So the commanding officer accepted it. The next guy comes in, same story, same story. Eight soldiers come in one by one with the same story. This guy's about to go crazy. The ninth guy comes in. Soldier, why were you late? Well, I was on a date. It went long. I missed the bus. I got a cab and the commanding officer said, wait, 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 wait. Steam coming out of his ears. Are you going to tell me that the cab broke down? He goes, oh, no, no, no. The cab didn't break down. But there were broken down cabs all over the road and all these dead horses. And it took us forever to get around all of them. (laughs) What type of excuses do you have of why you keep succumbing to temptation? We're going to give you three simple things that you're going to need to do every day that will help you make sure that the devil is not going to win in this real spiritual battle that we're in. So Ephesians 6 is where we're going to learn the importance of putting on, it says in verse 11, the whole armor of God. This is something I think we need to do consciously every morning put on the whole armor of God now notice it says armor of God this is not you putting on your own armor because if you do it reminds me of one of our our high school camps that we thought it would be a good idea to have one of the counselors put on a painter suit which is really nothing more than just white paper Okay, He zips up the painter suit, and then we had all of the students shooting him with a paintball gun. And we thought that was a good idea. But, you know, I mean, he's protected by this tissue paper, you know, it should be fine. And uh, I saw this happening, and I told my staff, I said, we can't do that anymore. This poor guy has bruises all up and down him. It's like you're going to put on your, your, your tissue paper protection against the devil? No, put on the whole armor of God. You have to put it on. You have to do this consciously. I think you have to do this on a daily basis. In the morning when you wake up, think about these things. I'm going to put on the whole armor of God. And by the way, it says the whole armor of God. I remember on our basketball team, boy, we thought we were amazing. The Quentin Road Christian School Eagles. We had, a, we had a basketball team. I mean, we had a small little school. We barely had enough for a team. But boy, and we had never played basketball, most of us. So we get out there. We're all, you know, we had the uniform. We had everything. We had, the, you remember those warm-up pants that snap? You could just you know, snap them off. Well, those are great until one of our team members comes in 
And he's at the, the score table and he's about to, to, to do that. And he had forgot to put his shorts on. So he takes those warm up pants off. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but his initials are Mark Julian. Okay. So we, we were dying. Now we won the game, but it's because the other team immediately forfeited when they, when they saw, put on the whole armor of God. Don't forget something. Okay. Don't forget something. I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was Mark, but it is now. So true story. I changed the name to protect the guilty. (laughs) But there is evil in the world, and we do need to to make sure that we are prepared every day. So again, we know that the devil is real. We know that the demons are real. We know that there is a fiery eternal judgment reserved for them. But we also know that they still have authority today. They still have power today in this world. So once we're saved, the devil no longer has possession of us. We now belong to God. We're on the winning side, but he's still going to try his hardest to make sure you're not effective for Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you winning any other people to Jesus Christ. So he's going to do everything he can to attack you, to tempt you, to discourage you, to oppress you. Okay? First Peter 5, 8 warns us of this, and it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I don't know if any of you, if you were in a situation where there, you were out in, in a, a savannah, and there's a real lion, and, and not... I don't think there's one of you that wouldn't be really paying attention to that animal. You're not going to take your eyes off of it. You're going to do everything you can to make sure you're going to survive this encounter with a real lion. No one's going to be fooled. No one's going to be duped. But the problem is that's that really is what he is. He is a roaring lion. He's seeking to devour you. You can't have your soul if you're saved. But he's going to do everything he can to make sure you don't share the gospel. Or if you do, your testimony, uh, people would laugh at you because the way you're living. But that's not how he appears. He doesn't appear as a roaring lion. He's not going to jump out with a pitchfork and horns, folks. If he did, then we wouldn't be fooled. But what does he do? Second Corinthians, it tells us in chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Remember, he was the chief created being, probably the fifth cherubim on the, over, over the throne of God. And he fell. Now, he isn't an angel of light, but he can transform himself. He's going to be subtle. He's going to be subtle. 2 Corinthians 11.3 For I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve. What does beguiled mean? It's a word that simply means deceived or wholly seduced with trickery 
through his subtlety. Subtlety means cunningness, craftiness, or trickery. It's going to look good. It's going to look right. It's going to have components of truth, but it's not going to be truth. It's going to fool you, or it's going to try to fool you. Okay? Be aware of this. Now, the prime example of how this happened is found in the beginning of the Bible. If we don't have Genesis, we don't have anything, friends. Genesis is literal history. Genesis 3, it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Now this was one of God's created creatures. It's funny that Eve wasn't surprised when the serpent spoke to her. Maybe the serpent had the ability. You know, some animals um, can talk. You've heard of parrots, right? Repeating words. Uh, I remember we had a dog that could, it was the most amazing thing. I would say, what's on the top of the house? And he would say, roof. <laughs> amazing dog. But uh, this serpent seemed to, <laughs> sorry. This serpent seemed to have an, an, an amazing ability. It was beautiful. It seemed like it could walk. Serpents can't walk <clears throat> today. But, but more subtle. So, so Satan, I think, possesses this creature, and goes at Eve with subtlety, with craftiness, with trickery, trying to seduce her wholly, to deceive her. And he said unto the woman, which was Eve, yea, hath God said. Now, in Genesis 3, it doesn't say this was Satan, but later in the Bible, it does say this is Satan, okay? Hath God said, this is Satan's MO, modus operandi. He is going to question God, okay? Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Man, God was so good, wasn't he? God created them, gave them this paradise, said you can eat freely of any tree of the garden, but there's one that you cannot eat of. If you do, you will at that day surely die. Die instantly, uh, spiritually, and begin to die uh, physically. So he's questioning this. This is trickery. This is subtle. He's questioning what? God's goodness. God's authority. Did God really say this? And by inference, the devil is saying that God has denied you something that would be good for you. He's denying it. He, 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 he wants to keep something from you that would be pleasurable. That's the lie of the devil. Think about all the temptations in the world. That's the lie. God is holding back. He said not to do that. Let me tell you something. When we ever start focusing on what God said not to do, we stop focusing on all the things that God said we can do. Okay? Be careful. Be careful of that negative thought and how quickly those negative thoughts can lead to you doing something so foolish as Eve did. And the woman said unto the serpent, this was mistake number one. She started a conversation. 
with someone that was questioning God and his goodness and his authority. Not to say that you can't answer someone like this because you do need to answer, but you should not have a conversation. But she did. She said unto the serpent, she started a conversation instead of starting a rebuke. Okay? She's tolerating the, the challenge of the serpent. Now, certainly she still could have gotten out of it. Certainly there, there's still hope for her, although this is a mistake. It's an early mistake. She could have gotten out of it, but this was the beginning of a lot of dominoes, and that's usually how it happens. Tolerating the challenge of God's authority by the serpent. And then when she started this conversation, when she started to talk and, and say things to the serpent that weren't an immediate rebuke, what she was doing is she was putting herself in a weak position. Listen, folks, the devil and, and his demons and the world and the flesh, they're all around us and they're always trying to trip you up. We cannot put ourselves in a weak position. Once we do, it's like, it's like you're trying to push a car out of the mud. You want to get the best footing that you can. We cannot afford to put ourselves in that position. So even by starting this conversation, not with a rebuke, but with just talking, it's like you're, you're going shopping with no money. Don't go shopping if you don't have money. Well, I'm just shopping. Well, don't go shopping. Okay. Unless you're going to buy, don't shop. Okay. Don't have a conversation with a rebel. So she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now that's her response. It sounds right. It sounds like she's repeating what God said, which is good. Except if you really know your Bible, you're going to notice that she both deleted and added to what God said. That's why you need to know your Bible. You need to know exactly what God said. So this is mistake number two. She's not accurate. And by not being accurate, she's adding to Satan's argument. You've got to answer Temptation, you've got to answer the devil with the exact truth from God. We'll get to that in a minute. So what did she leave out? What did she subtract? Well, she said, God said we could eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. What did God actually say? God said you could freely eat of all the trees of the garden. By leaving out freely, she is kind of saying, yeah, you know what, God did tell us not to eat of that one tree. I wonder why he would do that. Starting to question, starting to add to the argument of the devil. You say, was that really that, that bad to leave out one word? Yeah, because if she had said, God freely told us to eat all, all of the trees of the garden but one, she's saying he's good. He's not holding back. He's freely given us all this stuff. But since she left out that word, she subtracted from what God said. Okay. And then when she said that there's one tree and God said, don't eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, God didn't say that. At least it's not recorded. And I'm guessing God didn't say, don't touch it. You know, we are really good at adding to those things that God said no to. 
So now she shouldn't touch it. If she's not going to eat it, she shouldn't touch it. But God didn't say that. So she's also adding to this perception that the devil had introduced. He put his foot in the door by questioning God's goodness and authority and by deleting freely and adding don't I can we can't even touch it she's kind of adding to this God is onerous God is keeping me from something wonderful I wonder what it is okay don't ever focus on what God said no to because then we stop focusing on all the amazing things that God says yes to So the story continues in verse four. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Is that a true statement or is that a lie? That is a lie. God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent lied and said, you will not surely die. The serpent says, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. That's actually a true statement. You see how the devil uses truth but he doesn't give you the whole truth so it sounds right? All you have to do is watch Christian television. Okay? It looks good, it sounds right, but they're forgetting a lot of stuff in there. But you need to know what the Bible says so you're not duped by all of that. Okay? Yes, God said your eyes will be opened. And then Satan says, and ye shall be as gods. Is that true? No, that's a lie. So you have a lie, you have truth, you have a lie. Knowing good from evil, that's actually true. Their eyes would be open, they would know good from evil, but that's not a good thing. They would lose their innocence. They would have an experiential knowledge of sin and of rebellion. God did not want that for us. He didn't want us to experience that because with that comes so many horrible things, including separation from him. Wow. Lie, true, lie, true. But devil uses truth. The devil uses God's word, but he leaves out stuff. When the woman, in verse 6, saw that the tree was good for food. That's one thing I want you to really concentrate on. Good for food. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. Number two, think about that. Pleasant for the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. Number three. What we're seeing that the devil is tempting her with three things. And all three of these things we can succumb to, if we're not careful, if we're not aware, this is the way the devil does it. So what is he doing when he is tempting her um, that this tree is good for food? Well, he's tempting physically. He's tempting our flesh. He's tempting uh, what the way God created us. This is something that appeals to our senses, to our sense of pleasure. And then he says, or she says, that she, she also not only saw that the tree was good for food, but it was also uh, good for or pleasant to the eyes, which is an appeal to our emotion. So not only is it an appeal to our flesh or to our body, to our physical nature, but also to our emotion. The aesthetic, it was beautiful, it looked good. And we have that emotional component that, that we see something that's beautiful visually. It's something that moves you emotionally. And then it was something that was tempting her intellect, okay? Which is, it, it was a desire to make one wise. So you have all three of these components, the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual. And you know what? In 1 John 2.16, we're warned of this. It says, for that, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, there it is, 
The lust of the eyes, the emotion, the the visual stimulant, and the pride of life, the, the appeal to the intellect. We're warned about this. Satan used it to Eve. She fell. We're warned about it. We, we now know that's how he's going to do it. He's going to appeal to one or th- all three of those things. The flesh, the emotion, or the intellect. Now, fortunately, in the Gospels, in two of the Gospels, we read about Jesus' temptation. And you know, there was the devil. And there was Jesus And Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. And the devil appears to him. Jesus is hungry. Have any of you ever gone 40 days without food? How about 40 minutes? You know? Man. So what does Satan do? Satan appeals to his flesh. Make some bread. Take these stones and make bread. And then Satan appeals to his emotional desire to be given the kingdoms of the world. Wouldn't that be great if I had the kingdoms of the world? Now, Jesus already did, but the devil still had the authority and will until Jesus comes back. Okay, It's, it's, it's like uh, God gave Lucifer authority and he's, he's usurping that authority and there's one day a sheriff's going to come back and evict him. Okay, So he still has that authority, and that was God-given. And Jesus, again, the appeal to his emotion to be, to be given the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus rebuked him for that as well. And then the third temptation of the devil in the wilderness was the, um, the spiritual temptation. That if he threw himself off this pinnacle of the temple, that the angels would catch him. And wouldn't that be great to be, to be caught by angels? Now, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, created the angels, and it's absurd, but uh, they're the same three temptations, the same three things. <clears throat> now, how did Jesus win? How did Jesus defeat the devil with those three temptations? How did he not succumb? Now, personally, I believe that he could not sin. Okay, so it wasn't like, well, that was, that was close. I'm glad Jesus didn't sin. No, if he's God, he can't sin. But he showed it to us how, how we can answer the devil. What did Jesus do? He answered all three with a rebuke, quoting exactly what God said. Okay, this is important. That's how we can defeat the devil is by using what God said, to know what the scripture is and to answer the devil with scripture. So what happened? Well, unfortunately, back in Genesis 3, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And sin came into the world and death and crime and cancer and and rape and murder. All of these things are in the world. Sinners never sin alone. They always want to bring others into it. Why? Why do sinners always want to bring someone else into their sin? Because they want to justify themselves. What should she have done? What should he have done? Number one, resist the devil. Resist the devil, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Okay? 
Resist. Don't start a conversation. Stand up to the rebellion. Confront it head on immediately. Don't have the conversation. Don't entertain his lies. Don't window shop. Resist the devil. Number two, these are three simple things, folks. Resist the devil. By the way, that started with submit yourselves to God. So you'll resist the devil when you're submitted to God, but do it immediately. Number two, flee from sin. Now the devil will flee from you when you rebuke him, but you also can flee from the temptations. Flee, it says in 2 Timothy 2, 22. Young Timothy is warned. Flee also youthful lusts. Remember Joseph, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he fled. He fled. Flee from that temptation. Rebuke the devil, he'll, he'll flee from you, but also get away from the situation. If, if you ever face a temptation, by the way, let me just say this, is temptation itself sin? No, because Jesus was tempted in all ways, like we are yet without sin. So temptation isn't sin. It's when we entertain it, when we take that step toward it, when we have the conversation with it. We immediately rebuke the devil, and you might want to do this out loud. I don't know. It depends on where you're at. If you're a restaurant, maybe not. But, you know, rebuke the devil. I'm not going to fall for that, you stupid devil. Now, again, you might not want to say stupid devil because he still has power, but I'm getting upset at this, at this created being that God has already beat. Okay. At his own game, by the way. The crucifixion was to do away with this Messiah, this so-called one that would save everyone. And I just killed him. Well, it actually was the moment of victory because he rose again the third day. He paid for our sins on the cross, but flee from sin. Don't entertain it. rebuke the devil, get away from it. How do you do that? Well, don't let it, uh, be aware of it, be aware of it, but then just, just, uh, protect yourself, protect yourself. Okay. Number three, put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So let's talk about the whole armor of God. Come on up here, Mr. Armor of God man. Okay, this is a little scary. I hope that he can see. see it would be a kind of a, a long fall. It's great to see you today. I would shake your hand, but I'm not sure if I want to do that. Um, would you turn and face the audience? There we go. Okay, does anyone know who this is? It looks like Bryce, doesn't it? Let's see if it is. Yep, that's Bryce. I've heard that sound before. Put on the whole armor of God. And I understand that's pretty heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Do that again. Yeah, that's good. That's good. But I mean, if you, if you had that on uh, in, in, in ancient warfare, this would be medieval. Uh, we go back even further. You have the, the most powerful soldier in the world, the Roman soldier. They were trained. They were great. They had everything they need, both defensive and offensive. But they had to put it on. If, if he decided to not put something on, well, you know, this breastplate's a little heavy. I'm just going to leave it off today. You know what? They're going to go right for the heart. 
Or the helmet, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of in my way. I can't see real well. I mean, you're, 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 you're putting, you're, you're not protecting yourself from where, where they're going to try to attack you. So you put on the whole armor of God. You even put on your modern tennis shoes. That's, that, yeah, I know, I know. And let me see the sword for one second. Uh, just so some of you might not know this, but, uh, this was a sword that my dad gave me on my, uh, installation here as the pastor. And I said, why would you do that? Why would you give me a sword? Well, it says on there that, uh, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12. And then it says, passing the sword of the Lord from founding pastor James A. Scudder Sr. to the new senior pastor James A. Scudder Jr., September 18th, 2016. And I thought about this more and I thought, you know what? You guys have been just the most amazing church. You guys literally hardly any problems in this church. It's the most amazing thing, truly. And I'm being serious because I've pastored another church and I know a lot of pastors and there's a lot of problems. But you know what? This church, there aren't many. It's probably because I have a sword. Okay. <laughs> it's because I have a sword. No one's going to, no one's going to, you know, do anything. Anyways, back to you, Mr. Soldier Man. And um, let's give him a hand. I'll let you go back. All right, let's talk about, in our remaining few minutes, let's talk about the armor of God. The armor of God. Number one, you have the belt of truth. It says in Ephesians 6, 14, stand therefore having your loins, which is your midsection girt, or, you know, put it around with truth. In other words, put a belt of truth on. This belt would not only make sure that the soldier's clothing stayed on. Have you ever uh, been in TSA and they make you take off your belt? And some embarrassing things can happen when you do that. But um, it holds a sheath for where the sword goes. Truth, my friends, is so important. It's the key. Why? Because the devil is a liar. The devil is going to tell you, God is holding out. God is keeping something back. God, you, you want to do something that sounds great and fun and enjoyable, but, but God is a killjoy. He doesn't want you to enjoy that, whatever it is. But that's a lie. The devil is a liar. God loves you dearly. God wants to give you an abundant life, but you have to do it his way so you don't hurt yourself and you don't hurt other people. Put on the belt of truth to defend against that attack. You need to know what truth is. You need to know what the Bible says. You need to be reading it. You, need, you say, well, I'm not a reader. Then you can listen to it. Okay, the Bible is accessible. We have it. But so many people don't know what it says. Truth, my friends, will keep everything in place in the Christian life. The belt of truth. Number two, we read in the next part of Ephesians 6.14, having on the breastplate of righteousness. That's an important piece of armor. Why? Because it's protecting your heart. It's protecting the most important organ of your body. So how does this, how does this come to play? Well, remember, if you've received Jesus Christ, you are as righteous as Jesus. You are as righteous as Jesus. 
Okay. In other words, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your, your sinfulness. He sees Christ's righteousness. Put that on every day. Put on the belt of truth. I, I know what the truth is, and I'm going to use the truth. It's going to secure everything today. But also, I'd say every day, I am a child of God. I am as righteous as Jesus. And today, I'm going to allow him to, to work through me, and that I might show someone else what that is like, what God is like, that you are righteous. You don't have to strive to be justified. By your own works. Your own works cannot save you. Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Therefore, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Claim by faith the righteous character of God that is available to you through Jesus Christ. Put that on. Claim that every day. The third piece of armor that we read about is the shoes of the gospel. In Ephesians 6.15, it says, Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The soldiers would need good traction. They would often put little spikes into the bottom of their shoes or their sandals and they would have good traction and they would be able to move quickly to get toward or get away from danger. So what is the, what are the shoes of the Christian? Well, the Bible says that we are to be, we are to put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. I think it simply means this. The gospel is good news. Every day I want to use my feet to move me so that I can share the gospel with someone. That I know what the gospel is and that I can share it. That I'm fully prepared with a readiness to give the gospel of peace. That I recognize that the gospel is the answer to the problems of the world. And then it says the shield of faith in Ephesians 6.16. Taking all, uh, above all, taking the shield of faith. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Can you imagine uh, them shooting literally f- uh, arrows on fire at you. And the shield would protect you from that. They can actually interlock these shields. And as a, a, a team of soldiers, they could walk as a wall. And as Christians, we have this shield of faith. Faith protects us from attacks. The devil and the demons are going to throw their flaming arrows at you. They're going to throw a negative thought your way. They're going to throw an accusation your way. They're going to throw the lies that they have your way. And your faith will shield you from those attacks. Remind yourself every morning what is true about God. What is true about you? Meditate on a verse or two throughout the day. And that will help you trust more in the Lord, to use that shield of faith. Number five, the fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation. Another very important part of the body to protect is the head. And the helmet protected the Roman soldiers head from attacks. Paul gives us more detail on the helmet. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, it says, for a helmet... The hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation isn't a, a yearning or a, a, a guess or a, uh, I hope so type of feeling. Hope in this instance in the scripture is a confident expectation. You don't have to worry. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, once you believed in him and him alone, you're born again. The helmet of salvation. You don't have to worry about losing that. You have a confident expectation. God didn't give you temporary probation. 
God gave you eternal life. Salvation is a permanent possession that he gives us when we put our trust in him one time. This absolute certainty of salvation is is going to give us confidence to enter the battle and if necessary, take some blows because we have the helmet of salvation. I don't have to worry that God will disown me, that God will reject me, that God will give me up. No, I have the helmet of salvation. Every day say, nothing can separate me from the love of God. That'll protect you. The sixth item. I love this, the sword of the spirit. This is nothing other than the word of God. This is the sword of the spirit. Any of you ever do sword drills? When we were kids, we did sword drills. You'd hold up your sword and somebody would call out a passage and you'd try to rip through your Bible to find it and be the first one to stand up. Man, those were good times. Could we do one today? You might not have your Bible. You might not have your sword. Oh, I got it on my phone. It's not the same, is it? It's not the same. It's okay. As long as you have the word of God, you need the word of God in your mind. You need to memorize it. You need to know it. Okay. All these other five pieces of armor are defensive, but now we have an offensive piece of equipment. It's double-sided. It pierces both ways, by the way. Be careful of that too. But it was difficult to, to stop a Roman soldier's sword. It was a strong and powerful weapon. And we need to use the sword of the spirit every day. Jesus used it himself when tempted of the devil. We are in a real spiritual battle, my friends. It's not going to end until you're with the Lord. That kind of stinks. But as long as you know it, you'll be prepared. Now you have no excuses. You have no excuses. You're equipped. Now you have everything you need. Just put it on. Put it on. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. And if you will, with God's armor on, gain the victory every day of your life as a Christian. That devil and his demons, the flesh and the world, cannot gain the victory over you if you are careful to resist the devil, to flee from temptation and to put on the whole armor of God. That's all you need. Isn't that wonderful? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you been saved from hell to heaven? If you haven't, the Bible is very clear that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, and anyone who will believe in him, whosoever believes in him, should not perish, which is hell, but have everlasting life. You see, we have sin. You and I have sin. Jesus had none. He died for our sins on a cross. And he says, if you will believe in me, you will be saved. You'll be in the hand of God. Nothing can remove you from that. Yeah, we can mess up and we can lose our testimony and we won't be as effective for Christ, but you will never be lost. Never be lost because you're in the hand of God. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No one will be boasting that they're in heaven because of anything I did. It's all by what Jesus did and my trust in him. Jesus came, never sinned. He did great things, by the way. Remember how I was saying sometimes we add things to the word of God? You know, God says, keep the Sabbath and and make sure it's holy. Jesus healing on the Sabbath and the people were mad at that. That's adding to the word of God, right? You can't push an elevator button on Shabbat in, in Israel. Okay, Aren't you glad it's by grace that we're saved through faith? It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. 
Because we cannot keep the law. We cannot do right. And we usually end, end up adding to what God says. We can't even do that. And Jesus came and died for our sins on the cross. He paid for all of our sins. And if you will believe in him, you'll be saved. Not just today, but forever. Put on the whole armor of God once you've received Jesus Christ by faith. And the devil cannot have victory over you.